Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. Well, we record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts well. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing, 
Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey... We are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Good morning, Corey. Good morning, Randy. How are you? I'm good. I'm sound, really good. You sound a little tired. I am. I uh, I flew back from Oregon the other night, and uh, I, I had to swap planes in Seattle. And I ran from the sea concourse, took the little shuttle thing underneath the tunnel there over to the end concourse because it said I had... 14 minutes till my flight left i ran all the way over there got all sweated up and i get there and it says oh your flight is delayed two hours it's like <laughs> i could have crawled over here but so yeah if i if i'm tired or sound tired it's that's why but yeah uh, you want to know i thought maybe it was daylight savings time that had done it i heard this morning that there's all oh, sorts of crashes and wrecks going on this week because everybody's tired and they don't know how to drive when they're tired so it's causing really? an increase in accidents when did daylight savings time hit uh that was saturday night sunday oh. morning yeah that's why it was so early for my flight <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, I was going to say, uh, holy cow. <laughs> uh, so the the fun part about today is we we for all you guests who've been waiting for some real elk hunting information, do we have a treat for you today? Are we going to tell can, them which podcast they should go listen to to learn something finally? This one. This, oh, they this, get to learn on this one today. Yeah, because all the way from Reno, Nevada, I believe – Remy, are you in Reno today? I am, yep. And Remy with the broken arm. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I'm stretching it out. I, I got to keep <laughs> I it elevated. I up to show us. I, I have a broken <laughs> arm. Uh, it just gets really sore, and I got to keep it up above my heart. <laughs> uh, well, with us today is Mr. Remy Warren, who I don't know that Remy needs any introduction. Uh, we were hoping that he'd take over this podcast instead of starting his own. Because uh, uh, <laughs> the world could use some good elk hunting information. If, if, when Corey's on the podcast, Remy, uh, they get good information. When I'm mostly doing it, I think they're just here for some real low-quality entertainment value. So, <laughs> but appreciate you being here. What's the story with yeah. your, your arm in a cast? Oh, well, I actually um, I had to have my wrist essentially completely rebuilt because uh, I tore all the tendons in there and a lot of the ligaments. So they, they had to open it up on both sides, and then they took uh, some of the, I guess, tendons from inside my forearm and then drilled holes in all those little bones in my uh, wrist and then wrapped the tendons in there and then reconnected the missing things and then screwed the tendon to the, the new tendon to my forearm to my radius so it's uh it's, i can st i can just start to move my fingers now it's a little weird my thumb still has no feeling but um wow. yeah it's like uh i gotta just keep the fingers moving and try to keep it limber and it's gonna be a little when, bit of a did they, little bit of recovery so when did they do that uh three weeks ago i actually i i damaged it last year but um it, i found out it was like 
you know, just standard man stuff where I was like, oh, I'll tape my fingers together. And then, um, <laughs> <laughs> like, surely it'll be fine. And um, and then I, like, kind of lost the use of my hand for about three months. And someone was like, "What?" Uh, when it ended up coming out, or, like, I was kind of like, ah, you know, just, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And I shot a uh, big elk last year and there's a couple guys with me and I'm uh, going to skin it and I have to tape the knife in my hand cause I can't hold it. And they're like, no that, way. They're like, that's messed up, man. You should probably get that checked out. <laughs> Remy Warren is like that wannabe. He's the follow-up to, if you've ever seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, yeah. You know, they cut the guy's arm off. Oh, just a flesh wound. They cut Merely his other arm wound. off. Yeah. <laughs> Come yeah. back here, you coward. He's bouncing around on one remaining leg. And there's, that's yeah. modern-day Remy Warren. Yeah. So, so I was like, man, I my hand is just so i went to the doctor and i'm like oh he's just gonna tell me it's like just you know he's just gonna tell me ah oh, it'll get better or whatever and he comes back and he's like this is a major injury this is an extremely rare and extremely <laughs> extensive surgery there's only a few people in the world that have, can redo these and i'm like oh man and he's uh, like when uh, can we schedule you and i was like oh how long you know i was like what how long does it take he's like you need six months to recover I was like, what? Uh, then we're going to wait. <laughs> we're waiting until February. Uh, so I went through the whole hunting season with it. I had a, I kind of hit it a little bit because I, I got, I had like a brace if I needed to do stuff, but I still did all my guiding and everything. And um, yeah, it was kind of, it's kind of painful, but uh, at some point you just kind of get used to it. And then now it's, um, so hopefully it's going to all be uh, working here in a little bit. So I get this thing cut off at the end of the month and then I'm going, uh, to chase some red deer in Argentina the very next day. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I so. just told them, gonna be, you're going to be rifle hunting. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I was, I was gonna, so I'm trying to figure out the mouth tab thing, but I just didn't have enough time. Yeah. Uh, I probably should have started it. If anybody has something like this, my suggestion would be start the mouth tab before you have the cert, you know what I mean? Because I was like, yeah. now I've got a couple days and I've been on the road a little bit. So, uh, mm-hmm. not enough time, but I've got, I've got a hunt planned in, uh, May that I'm going to do with the mouth tab. So, and then wow. probably by then, by, by August, I'll be ready to rock and roll with the bow. So, um, yeah, I was, I was really hoping to bow hunt, but that kind of put a damper on some of the plans. <laughs> so just, um, oh. adapt. So, wow. so how did you hurt your wrist? That's the the burning question here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. it's uh, I think it was a it was a compounding thing. Um, the fir- what set it off was this is really embarrassing. Uh, I, I <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why I asked the question. Yeah. I knew it wasn't going to be like you didn't wrestle an alligator or anything. No, no, no. it was a mallard duck. I I sky busted this duck that was flying full tilt and about sixty feet up. And it was coming in hot, and I was like, "Oh, I'll just catch it." And I put <laughs> no my hand up. <laughs> and I, uh, I was like, you know, when my two, two middle fingers touched my forearm, I should have, you know, and I and I didn't even catch it. If I would have caught it, it would have been fine. But uh, yeah, it definitely dropped after Whoa. that. Uh, yeah. So then that's when I kind of taped the fingers up and was like, Oh, and then I think it never, it was actually more extensive damage than I thought and never actually healed. Right. And then I think just over the course of, um, a little bit of time it wore out, uh, or it had been torn and then 
you know, just using it a little bit. We had our, I had a baby girl and just holding the baby, I think like really got it kind of messed up. And then I was on my first hunt last year, I guess it was the beginning of August, um, uh, sheep hunting. And I was just like using my trekking pole and the steep shale stuff and the wrist just gave out and just bam, went right into the hill. So I think that's what dislocated the bones after that. And then, um, <laughs> and then, and then I was just like, okay, you know, and I'm like, well, I'll just use my other hand, <laughs> my left hand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's just like compounding. <laughs> uh, so Remy, can I ask what your undergraduate study was? Cause I know Corey was a mechanical engineer. Uh, I was in marketing business. Okay. Yeah. The reason I ask is I'm thinking about the physics of a six-pound Drake Mallard going 35 miles an hour. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and trying to catch that. Uh, okay. There's a lot of energy there. And I probably would have been fine, but I was wearing neoprene gloves and my fingers couldn't go together. So they were like spread out. I blame the neoprene because uh, I feel like I could have nabbed it had I uh, not had my fingers so like I- I- inoperable. Or if you, would have just, like a- if you would have just taped your fingers together in the neoprene, you probably, probably would have been fine. Probably would have been fine, yeah. yeah. Or just bring like a, a good mitt, you know. I think that would have absorbed some of the energy. <laughs> oh, man. This is, I mean, if you can catch the, like a 150-mile-an-hour line drive, I should be able to catch a, a falling duck, you know. <laughs> uh, I think there's that mass times uh, velocity problem there. The mass yeah. might be more of the problem. I think you're hmm. right. Well, this is better than I ever. I, yeah. I, you know, I sent this outline of ideas we should talk about. Little did I know that Remy would have such a cool story about <laughs> duck hunting. You know, it, it, it would be a better story, Remy, if you said, like, well, I'd hit this elk and I, you know, I dropped my bow thinking he was dead. And when I walked over there, I had to wrestle him down or something. I know. I, I was like in between the, uh, in between the duck and then having to get the surgery, I was really hoping to have a, like a crazy bear encounter where I could punch him in the face. I was hoping Remy would say that he fell off a ladder putting up Christmas lights or that he, you know, got carpal tunnel from running a snowblower or something like that, just so that we could see Randy get all worked up and explain how he doesn't do any of that stuff. <laughs> nope. I don't. I, in fact, I, when I was uh, in Redmond, Oregon last week, I do a Q&A session, and one of them, uh, somehow we got on the topic of Christmas lights. And <laughs> I said, I know that 70% of statistics are made up on the spot, but I'm going to give you one here, that about 50% of injuries to men over 50 are falling off ladders and porches putting up Christmas lights. So I don't do Christmas lights. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a pretty safe bet. <laughs> or a pretty safe statistic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I ever did it, they would they would be there forever. It'd be house for sale, Christmas lights included, because I'd never go take them down. But, oh, well. So uh, now we're going to, since we got a guest who's, you know, Corey's modesty, he doesn't always let out all the good elk hunting information. I don't have any. So now we have an opportunity to provide some to the guest. Uh, I guess the, the thing I, going back to your comment, Remy, about 
how you uh, had to tape your knife to your hand. I saw pictures of a humongous bull that you arrowed last fall. Yeah, that was the bull. That oh, was, was the knife it? tape bull? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Uh, is is there more of a story to that than just well? He walked in, I shot him, and then I had to tape my knife to my hand. No, that's about it. Um, no, I, I, I mean, <laughs> you hit all the key points there. Uh, no, I mean, I think uh, it was one. I was actually in an area where there's not really big bulls, um, you know, so I wasn't expecting. I was actually not hunting for a big bull. I was hunting for a bull. Um, I'm sure you guys have been in areas where you're like, yeah, you know, mostly kind of top end bulls, two seventy to three hundred. You know, looking for I was looking for a six point, and then um, we had a one encounter that day, and there was a I, I actually there was a, a bull that was working that I think it was the the day before, and it was just like a little raghorn. I was like, oh, I know for sure I could call this bull in, and I was just like, I got to walk away from the situation because <laughs> I'm probably going to end up killing this bull, and I was like, I don't even want to try, you know. And so the next day. Uh, the night before we spotted a really nice bull. And so the next morning hiked in after him, got, got calling, uh, we're on this ridge and this little burn and the, that bull was, you know, bugled right on the other side, maybe 20 yards, but doing that thing. That's like, it was, it was early September. So it was the first, first couple of days of September. And, uh, just kind of ended up going the other way i think just you know whether he, i don't know if he actually had a cow or if he was just trying something new or didn't want to didn't want to come in where we could see him or if he got spooked whatever so there's another bull bugling across the way and so we drop down do that thing and it's like bugling back and forth and that bull's up on this point just kind of stand like just there not moving and it sounded like you know it's like a bunch of lone bulls trying to you know, maybe get some cows to come to them or whatever they were doing. And so we dropped down and I dropped down in bugle and I hear that bull bugle off on our side now. So I was like, Oh, he's, he's kind of coming. So we start, I didn't want to give away our position and be in a bad spot. So we start moving up toward this other bull and it's just really thick. Um, and I, I, there wasn't a good opportunity for a shooting lane. So I was going like super quiet. I didn't, I didn't want that bull to, uh, to come to us where I couldn't get a shot. So I found this, there's like a little old logging road and it was so steep in there and really thick. And I thought, okay, if I cross this little logging road, there is a burnt, a little burned out patch and I can call them right there. It'll be perfect. So I crossed just as I crossed, there's two guys filming and they were like stopped on the logging road. And I hear the bull bugle like 15 yards away from us. I'm like, Oh crap. And he's walking down that logging road. Now I've got no shot. He sees the other two guys and just, it was such a bummer, you know, where you're like everything, you did everything right. And it was a matter of seconds that you ended up not getting this bull. And it was a nice six point bull. So we're like, okay, a little bit defeated, go down, all the bulls shut up. And so I was just said, Hey, let's, let's make a different plan. We're going to go into the, a place that people probably don't want to go into real thick stuff and just try to call a bull that's bedded. Um, but I don't know, it's kind of a tactic that I use a lot, especially early where I'm just hoping that there's a bull that's bedded. Maybe he's with cows, maybe he's not. And then I get him to just come out of his bed. Sometimes when you get right up in their zone, um, they just pretty much run right in. So we were doing that and, uh, got into that area letting out calls just, you know, every few, probably pretty much every hundred, hundred, 200 yards. Cause it's just thick enough where I didn't think the sound would travel very far. And, uh, 
sure enough, we're at one spot where, you know, we decided to take a little break, have some lunch. I made a lucky fruit roll up. I ate my lucky fruit roll up. <laughs> <laughs> then about a hundred yards later, I call and I hear a bugle and I turned to the guys. I was like, okay, we're going to, I'm going to, they're recording and everything. And I'm like, Hey, I, I'm going to call again. And if he's closer then we know that bull wants to play. And I make a cow call and he bulls at half bugles at half the distance he was. And I'm like, jump in the bushes. We jump in the bushes and 45 seconds later, he comes out screaming and I shoot him at 47 yards. And then he runs off and I walk up to him and go, wow, that's the biggest elk I've ever put my hands on. (laughs) 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 Very, very unexpected. (laughs) So it was pretty sweet. You make that sound pretty easy, Remy. (laughs) It was easy. (laughs) Everybody played their part. You know, everybody did what they had to do right, (laughs) which Mm. um, was pretty crazy. And, I mean, I was never expecting a bull like that from there. I mean, it was a bull. I actually got him scored. uh, Shoot, what? He scored, uh, his official score was 388 and change and netted 378. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that's the did biggest you, bull I've ever killed with my bow. Yeah. Did did you have any idea when he walked no, or before no. he walked out? Did you have uh, any idea? No. My, I saw him walk out and I said, That's a giant. And then, you know, and I was thinking like I mean it's so thick too, I just knew it was a big bull, but I was like kinda in my head like three sixty type bull and um thinking, Wow, that's a way big bull <laughs> don't mess this up he was like when i when i took the shot he was behind a bunch of stuff and he was standing there and the wind started to swirl and i just thought like oh this is not going to be good so i drew back and i had about a football size shape opening and it was and then he started to take one step and i just scooched over a little bit gave him a call and, and then let it rip and uh, I was right before I shot, I said, please don't hit that branch because there was one branch. Like <laughs> I was really threading the needle and I was really analyzing it. And I'm like, do not, if I hit that, it was like one of those things where he was like, it found its mark. And uh, I was really glad I, I took a few seconds to analyze whether I thought it was going to hit the branch or not. And I, I truly believed it wasn't. So let it fly. Because uh, I didn't think oh. that we were gonna, it wasn't gonna, the wind wasn't gonna hold for us, and I pretty much had to take that opportunity. The nice thing was, the yardage that it was is essentially like when I step out of my door, I've got a target that I call like my home target. That essentially it's right at forty-seven yards, so I shoot that distance uh, probably more than any other distance. So it felt really, felt really nice. It's where my pin kind of sits, anyways, is right at forty-seven. So I was like. Uh, pretty fortunate that you know i've messed with that yardage enough to kind of understand the drop because i only have a single pin so i knew that i i was pretty confident that it was going to make that little gap man wish i had that kind of confidence (laughs) (laughs) as as remy's talking i couldn't resist i jumped out to youtube looks like there's video of this hunt on your youtube channel Yep, there is, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> cool. I thought maybe you were holding it for some special occasion, Remy. I was out on your website messing around yesterday. I didn't see anything out there about videos or anything. I thought, well, maybe Remy just uses all this video for his own fun and just has his own <laughs> private collection library or something. I actually have a pretty extensive private collection. I've, I've decided I've, I need to do something with a lot of it, but some of, some of the best hunts that I've ever done, I actually haven't, I filmed them completely and haven't even edited. It's like, I'm not, 
it's just stuff gets so backed up. I don't have time to edit things. And then I'm like, man, or I have something that I think is so cool. I was like, I really want to do a good edit on it and then just keep putting it off for 10 years. <laughs> I'm like, well, <laughs> just throw this away now. But, <laughs> Darn. Don't do that. Yeah. I've got 10 production employees and they don't have much to do. They've been fishing all winter. So if you need somebody to do something, I could see if I could interrupt their fishing this winter. And oh, there you go. Help you out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might take you up on that. My a fognac elk hunt with my brother is like one of the coolest hunts I've ever filmed, and just have like days of foot. I could probably make five episodes out of it, and it's um, it's pretty cool. A lot of cool encounters and grizzly bears and all kinds of crazy stuff happened. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it'd be pretty. That's one that I gotta I gotta put in the queue at some time, sometime in my life. <laughs> so here the three of us are, and I'm the only guy who's never hunted elk in alaska i would say that i put you at the top of the list when it comes to iq <laughs> yeah. i don't know what remy's experience was like but holy cow uh, i've done it three times now <laughs> <So>. <laughs> i'm still it's like uh, i just never learn from my mistakes just like <laughs> i like to tape the knife in my hand and keep beating my head against the trees you know <laughs> Uh, well i'm sure that the audience hearing your story remy i'm gonna let you and Corey get into details here about this because i i'm just an observer uh but you were talking about this whole calling sequence and what you were doing and why you thought this and why you thought that and you you said something that i've heard Corey mention many times about if you can get close enough and kind of get them mad um I'd be interested for you guys to do a dive in about how do you do that when you got a bull bedded with a group of cows? No, and I think uh, even stepping back a little further, um, yeah, and, and just in case there is two or three people that don't know who Remy is, uh, Remy, give us just a quick <laughs> overview of, of who you are, what you do. Yeah, so I mean, I, I pretty much got my start as an elk guide. Um, I'd say probably since I was like eighteen, um, my full time thing was just guiding elk hunters. Mostly, I mean, all over the place: uh, New Mexico, Montana, mostly Montana. Um, now I, I also have an outfitting business in Montana, and um, yeah, I did do a lot of writing. Uh, did some writing for, still do for Western Hunter Magazine. Um, also do like a lot of videos and uh stuff i've got a youtube channel used to have a show or still do i mean we still do solo hunter it used to be on um sportsman's and outdoor channel uh so just kind of would go out and do some self-filmed hunts and then um yeah now i've got a podcast as well live wild podcast um so yeah just kind of do a lot of a lot of different things but really cut my teeth and made essentially um a living guiding elk hunters for a very long time i guess probably over well just too much math this would be uh (laughs) this would be someone else's department (laughs) but close to 20 years nice no and that's uh so i listened to you've got two episodes out now on live wild is that Yep, that's correct. Two of them out. So I listened yeah. to the first one, and it was The Eyes Have It. And as I'm listening to you describe, you know, mostly spot and stock and, and how you get close to animals and how you avoid uh, detection with their eyes, the way that you lay it out and explain it is so easy to follow. It's so educational. Uh, and I just thought that's that's what I always strive. You know, Remy is summed up in 29 minutes 
how to beat every animal's eyes on the mountains and get close to them. And if I'm trying to explain something, um, you do it in the most efficient and educational way. And now your, your next uh, episode is the nose nose. And I think uh, you and I and Randy would all agree that beating, a, especially an elk's nose, is really the the key to getting close to him. So anyway, I just wanted to to uh, throw that out there. You know, Randy and I at the beginning of, of every episode in our intro, we say if you want to if you want to learn something about elk hunting, this isn't the podcast. There, you know, we'll we'll try to find one that we can send you to. If there's a podcast out there that is going to be educational and concise and entertaining. It's definitely the new Live Wild podcast with Remy Warren. So just want to make sure that uh, people know where to find you. But so back to Randy's point, uh, as you're describing getting in, you know, early September on those bulls and you like getting close to their bedding area, whether they have cows or not. I mean, that's, you're singing my language right there because that's, I love that. And uh, there aren't a lot of, there aren't a lot of us who like to hunt elk in their bedding areas. And uh, I think it's somewhat controversial. People always say if you hunt an elk in their bedding area, you're going to blow them out. And they're going to leave the country and you're going to ruin the hunting for everyone else. So what, uh, what do you say to that? Uh, I was like, I'll be, I'll be eating backstraps before I worry about what everyone else is doing. <laughs> I'm not too worried about it. <laughs> I was like, there's going to be one less hunter in there, you know, cause I'll be, I'll probably have tagged out. Um, I mean, I hunt bedding areas a lot. I call in a lot of elk, uh, middle of the day. <clears throat> there's a lot of tactics. And, and I mean, the other thing is, you know, you, you bump an elk out of its bedding area, but there's, you know, I, it, I kind of pick those spots based on the type of topography and, um, the type of like vegetation. So, you know, I might go, I might hunt some other place or some other area or, uh, you know, if, if something happens, but you, you could blow them out at any time. It's not just that blowing them out of their bedding area. Um, I think it's a, it's actually a pretty good, in my opinion, it's a good place to kind of target, especially when things aren't going like when you're kind of on the elks i like to make the elk on my terms and so that's when they're in their bedding area i can kind of dictate what's going on now there's a little bit of a lot of leg work and other things but you know if you play it right it can be a pretty effective way to hunt and maybe you know like a lot of times in the middle of the day the, the winds are a lot more steady so like you said you aren't tricking their nose but the mornings and the evenings is the hardest time to trick their nose but the dead middle of the day in the mountains um if you've got a little bit of breeze it can be fairly consistent um or even the thermals you know sometimes it, the wind might be swirling but it's hot enough that it's just taking your scent straight up and uh you can get away with a little bit more and and have yourself some pretty good opportunities so i don't i don't mind it um i think that there's uh yeah, I guess there probably are people. It, now, if I, it just depends too. If I saw some elk and I was like on them and they moved into a spot that I was like, well, maybe I'd have a better chance of getting them in the evening, then I'm not going to go in there. But if it's uh, a situation where, hey, I'm, I'm having trouble finding elk or I'm having trouble whatever, then I'm going to go to places where I'm pretty sure they're going to be and, and throw out some calls that I think will definitely work. And I found a lot of success doing that. So I try to just to play it on what the elk are doing and, um, you know what's going on for that for that particular day even yeah no and i think you know you mentioned a couple things there but one of the hardest things to do first thing in the morning and then late at evening is hunt an elk because they're on the move 
You know, they're going yep. from their feeding areas to their bedding areas. If a bull has cows, you're chasing him up the mountain, bugling to him. It's really hard to get that bull to turn around and leave his cows to come into your calls. And so you're basically chasing. You hear people talk all the time. The bull just bugled and ran. And there's a reason for that. If he's still bugling and he's moving away from you, he probably isn't, you know, he hasn't winded you. If he's keeping vocal, it's probably because he's just following his cows back to the bedding area. And, you know, they might go several miles and a lot of times hunters give up before they they get there. Same is true in the evening. Plus, you also have the thermals to worry about that are going to be changing. You know, the elk are moving with the changing thermals. They're going up the mountain as the thermals are coming down, hoping to get to that bedding area about the time the thermals change. And so you have a lot of things going against you to hunt an elk, you know, during that first two or three hours in the morning. And like you said, when they get to that bedding area, the thermals change, they become consistent for, you know, six hours there. So usually, and, and like you said, maybe not consistent, but at least it's warm enough that the thermals are moving up and you can get above that elk and, and have a good chance. Plus, now that elk's not moving, his cows are bedded down. If he has cows, uh, he's in his his territory and doesn't want another bull coming in there close. So there's a lot of things that really add up to to an advantage during that middle of the day hunt that would be a disadvantage uh, outside of that time. And you're exactly right when you know you said you're you're eating back straps. I always say I think I displace more elk in little white game bags than I do by busting them out of their bedding areas. So <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, we're definitely on the same same wavelength there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny. I mean, uh, like I for me when I think about elk calling, like it's in my opinion, just really a game of proximity and, you know, understanding what the elk are going to do and their behavior. And the easiest way to kind of like, when they're sitting there, you can get in their bedroom and you can be in proximity to where they want to come in. When it's morning time, you, you're probably chasing, like you say, you're chasing them. It's hard to get ahead of them. Yeah. You can get things to work, but it ca- takes a lot of work. And it's not that I don't try, but I would say most of the elk I kill are probably when they've stopped, when they've got their cows and I've, I've changed up my plans a little bit and, uh, got in tight and, and then made that call that they liked and they didn't, they, you know, couldn't resist and come in. Uh, yeah. It's, and, and actually, you know, doing a lot of guiding it's it's a tactic that i kind of had to use because it's like we'd chase elk all morning and i'd be like well these guys are dead tired this is the way that i like to hunt you know i'll chase them all day but they'd be like you know can we like maybe pinpoint them a little bit better and not be running all morning (laughs) (laughs) well you guys ought to hunt together then because uh i'm right there with the guy who's like do we have to run all day long or can we just stop and take a chocolate break here or something Randy says okay. that, but but if you watch the last episode of Destination Elk, you know that Randy will chase up and down the mountain all day long, as long as there's a grouse in front of him. <laughs> That's what I've heard. <laughs> so long as there's no grouse in there, <laughs> uh, yeah. no no grouse distractions will be good, right? <laughs> <clears throat> then it's break it's break time once the grouse are either the limit of grouse. The, the, my best elk hunting days are after I got my limit of grouse. I seem to be a little more focused. At that. <laughs> but, uh, well, Randy so, actually, uh, Randy changes elk hunting locations based on the grouse numbers. Yes, I do. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> What's the uh, so? <laughs> You know, I, I'm not very good at killing elk, so I got to do something to, to entertain myself <laughs> along the way. But uh, so, uh, 
as far as uh, uh, how aggressive or not aggressive you call when you get in close like that when you're in those bedding areas is it Oh, I, I call really aggressive. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always had like the philosophy, I think, you know, we've all heard this, like people say like, oh, they're call shy, they're call shy, they're call shy. And I think a lot of the people misinterpret elk behavior for elk, like, I don't know, hunters, we, in our mind think that we're just like so human centric that we think that we did something, (laughs) you know, it's like we made a bugle and they're going away. So they don't like us. (laughs) And it's like, if I was a real elk and I made that bugle, that elk is doing the exact same thing. So understanding that behavior, uh, makes a big difference. And I, I mean, I like to call, I, I don't know if it's, I kind of relate it to like fly fishing. You know, there's guys on the river that only throw dry flies. I like to bugle elk in. That's just my personal way that I like to hunt. It's the personal way that I like to kill elk. It's the personal way that I feel like, you know, I was like, maybe there's, you know, tactics and things that I could do where, you know, it's not that, but I love that bugling interaction. So I get aggressive with calling. Um, I bugle a lot. I call a lot uh, because I like, I like that interaction. I like to call elk that way. And I've gone to places where people are like, you can't call elk here. It doesn't work and call an elk. So I think it's just a matter of understanding the elk and then like being consistent with it. Corey, you were smiling really big (laughs) while Remy was saying that. We got the video feed going so we can see each other's reactions. The audience can't see it. But while Remy was talking about that, uh, Corey was beaming very big. Is, is I, it's just a, like he's. A, it's like he read is reading straight out of my playbook, and I'm reading straight out of his. And it's there aren't a lot of people that that uh, like aggressive calling and calling a lot. And I'm as he was saying, you know, I just I that's for me that's the thrill of elk hunting. That's the just the the greatest adventure when in any hunting is a vocal interaction at the level that you can get with an elk and being able to uh you know every elk's different and you aren't going to be able to bugle aggressively to every single elk but i'm probably going to try and if it doesn't yeah. work then i'll go find the one that it's going to work on because that uh, that style of hunting is just so incredibly fun and you know it, it is they're a, they're an animal they their iq's it's all about instinct and survival. So it's not like they're smart and they're analyzing. They're sitting back there going, okay, is that a human or is that an elk? They hear a bugle, they're interested. In some degree, they're, you know, if they hear any vocalization, you've got their interest. And then it's just a matter of getting them to come in. And, you know, I don't know Remy's philosophy on it, but I just, I try to keep it simple. And I don't worry about you know, a language that they're speaking. And what did that elk just really say? Was he saying, you know, I I don't worry about that. I just try to figure out what emotion it's going to take to trip a trigger and get that elk to come in. And really, when you boil it down, an elk's going to come into calls either because he wants to breed a cow that he hears or he wants to fight a bull that he hears. And you've just got to find a way to trigger that in that bull to to either make him think there's a cow there to be bred or there's a bull there to be fought. And that's uh, when you boil it down that simple, you can get really, uh, you, you can go really freestyle with your calling and just have a lot of fun. No, oh, yeah, I definitely have a lot of fun when I'm calling and it and it tends to work. And I think you're right. It's not, I mean, <clears throat> I, I hate to say it. I, I mean, I, I, I definitely know that I'm not the best elk caller in the world, but I'm good at calling an elk. Um, and I don't, I think that there, you can, you could maybe be like the best, make the best sounds and whatever. And 
and maybe still not calling as many elk is because you're right. It's that like, you know, I, I, I just think of it like if I, I just put myself in the place of that animal, like, okay, I am pissed. I am a bull that's pissed and whatever and acting and, and then not even that, but just timing and proximity too has a lot to do with it of just knowing where to be, when to make a call, um, as opposed to like what calls to make, um, you know, I think that that, and yeah, man, I mean, there's been times where like a lot of the elk that I call in for people, I'm running around bugling and running and throw like smashing sticks and there's nothing more exciting or more fun. And, you know, like you said, there's, you know, if you like to call, I mean, there's me personally, like if I'm elk hunting and I'm like, just, I'm just out by myself, I'm elk hunting and I'm like bugling and I see some elk that just don't want to bugle. I go like, Oh, I could sneak in there and kill that bull. I'll just walk past them and go find one that wants to play. <laughs> like I just have no, I have no, I, to be honest, like, I mean, it, it, it can be really effective to sneak in i think elk are really easy to sneak in on so it's like it can be a super effective tactic and a great way to kill big bulls but i just generally if it's like september and i have the option to call them i'm just not interested in it i just rather go find one that wants to play or wait until that one wants to get fired up because <laughs> that's fun yep. you know that's the whole reason we do this so. I, I say the same thing i'll walk wow. by a hundred elk in a canyon to find one elk that's bugling and that's because, yeah and and face it if you're trying to call in an elk, you have to find one that's being vocal. I mean, yeah, you can go and, and try to get in there and you can work all your magic and, and be really persistent and eventually that elk might talk. But the chances of him coming in if he's not vocal to your calls, if he does come in, he's going to be super wary. It's going to be a lot harder to get set up and get a shot. You get an elk that's spouting off every time you break a branch, every time you cow call, every time you bugle that bull's just begging to come into your setup. And so, you know, that's, if you want to be the most efficient hunter you can be and you want to use calls, you've got to find an elk that's that's matching the attitude and, and is ready for that style of hunting. And yeah, I'll walk right by a hundred elk and find one that is. And that's why, you know, I'm not a trophy hunter. And like, you know, Remy was saying, he's in a unit where a 270, maybe a 300 inch bull's top end. We're looking for a representative bull. And, you know, you had a raghorn that you heard bugling and, and you had to pull yourself away from it because you knew that there was a chance you'd end up killing it. I'm the same way. And elk comes bugling in my face into a setup. It's not about, oh, is that a 300-inch six-point? Is that a raghorn? That's a bull that's bugling, and that's what I'm there to experience, and that's what I'm there to do. And it's uh, there have been several five-points that have made the mistake of bugling in my face, and I couldn't keep my finger off the trigger. Oh yeah. I've been there many a times, <laughs> but that's the fun. Like when I, when I'm guiding guys or whatever, I say like my philosophy is I'm looking, I tell them we're looking for someone that wants to play. Like we might go five to and in, in this amount of time, we're going to find a bull that wants to play. And that's our goal is like just finding the bull that wants to play. And I like, that because it's like we're, we're seeking a certain type of encounter but once you get those encounters and by actually passing up other opportunities to do other things you really get a lot of experience calling and working bulls and knowing what works and and then sometimes you know just based on that knowledge you know okay well i can work some marginalized bulls that i see that maybe you know might not respond to this certain thing but they're going to respond to this or oh I, if i move in like i like say okay this bull's not really fired up but oh, there's some cows in there and he's going into bed. I bet you I could get that bull fired up at midday if I do this. Or, you know, just playing different, playing with different tactics, uh, trying to figure out what, what gets bulls fired up. 
So Remy, let oh. me ask you, how do you, how do you find that bull that wants to play? Uh, for me, this is, uh, maybe I'm giving too many. You are right. We're going to, we're going to tell everybody exactly how to kill bulls and it's going to be, it's going to be bad for us. Um, I mean, I always start super early and try to find the ones that are like, uh, you know, like try to figure out where the bulls are first. Like that's my, my thing is like, okay, I'm locating and I do a lot of calls. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I mean, I, in my opinion, there's no such thing as overcalling because I'm trying to find a bull that wants to respond to a call. And, um, my podcast this week is actually about the way sound travels in the mountains and I called it, can you hear me now? But you can't, call in a bull if it can't hear you or you can't hear it. So the topography and the way the trees are and everything plays a huge factor in whether a bull can actually even hear that call. And that depends on like my call frequency. So if I'm in an area, I might be calling, calling, calling until I actually, you know, like moving spots. And I kind of like to find spots like you would think of a glassing spot where you get you know, really good glassing. I think of like sound spots where I get really good sound where I can hear back and cover a lot of country with my calls and just effectively call, you know, use a lot of location calls to try to get to a bull to fire up. Then it's like, okay, I know there's a bull here. I know there's a bull here. Knowing where those elk are is, is the start of it. And then just once I get those bulls fired up, you know, working those elk or maybe finding multiple places where I've got bulls where I could just go there and just get them get them started at least, um, kind of identifying where they are and, and what elk might want to make noise and then kind of picking the bull that I think is going to be the one that makes the noise and then moving in and doing the whole calling thing and trying hopefully get them to come in. Has anyone ever left a note on your truck telling you, you call too much? Uh, yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you know, like I've had that happen where, you know, guys are like, oh, we heard you calling over there. He's like, geez, you full sore throat. Oh yeah. Like, yeah, you know, cool. Like we're packing out a bowl today. I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I just, I keep going back to that, but it's like the proof is in the pudding. It's like, I mean, maybe if everybody did that, it, but I feel like I've got this philosophy that like, elk are going to do elk things. You know, they have to, they have to bugle, they have to breed, they have to find each other, they have to do certain things. And so, you know, if elk are doing elk things, like, you know, if I'm calling at every point where I think that, you know, I got to call into this ridge and call into this ridge and call into this spot and call into that spot, I'm not really, I'm not really buggering anything up. If they aren't making noise back, they aren't making noise back, but if they don't necessarily care what that elk over there is doing if they don't care. And if they do care, then they're going to bugle back. Um, and so I'm looking for those, those bugle back bulls. Yep. Mm. Uh, that's what we got. A, we had a note left on our truck one time that said, if you were up this drainage this morning, you bugle way too much. And we found the note on the windshield as we were packing out the first load of elk. <laughs> and uh, thought it was kind of ironic that somebody was spending the middle of their day to ride their four-wheeler around and look for our truck to leave a note while we were... Uh, of taking care of an elk that we had spent a lot of time bugling with that morning. And, oh, and yeah. uh, it's just funny. Yeah. It's, uh, but it's different, you know, different styles too. I mean, I imagine if you don't call and you just spot and stock and you hear somebody like just all this bugling going on, you're probably like, Oh, I don't Geez, what is that guy doing? He's just letting the elk know everywhere he's at I'm, while he's trying to like <laughs> sneak around. But I don't know. In my opinion, just like the way that I like to hunt, I think September is for being loud. <laughs> just like, I don't know. <laughs> 
That's a t-shirt. That's a t-shirt yeah, right there. September yeah. is for being loud. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, uh, Remy, I, I know it's hard to draw a tag in Nevada, so maybe you don't get a chance to hunt Nevada elk that much. Uh, Corey, your season in Idaho opens early. Uh, a lot of people will say, well, they aren't going to respond until September 12th or something. Do you change what you guys have been talking about? Do you do it differently September 2nd than you are these other times of the season? Um. That's a good question. I generally, I mean, I don't know if I do a lot different. Um, I mean, I've called in big bulls in end of August, you know, like in Nevada. Um, you know, but I also like kind of try to match the temperaments of the elk that I'm calling to, too. So like, like you say, you got to find one that wants to play, but also it's like, well, what are the elk kind of doing where you're at? You know, if they aren't making a lot of noise, then I kind of, I use different calls and I kind of use different setups and I, I focus on different areas and a different type of calling because it's not that those elk aren't like, um, earlier. Sometimes I found like if they're, if they're bugling, then I'm, I immediately go to bugle default mode. If it's like, I think that they're more bulls kind of checking things out, then sometimes I might use more cow calls then, um, and kind of focus on areas where it's like, okay, I'm kind of focusing on, uh, finding a lone bull and actually lone bulls are the easiest bulls to call in. So sometimes it actually is beneficial to hunt those early seasons because you can find elk that are in their summer patterns still. So it's like, you know, their locations, and then you can kind of single out those big bulls before they get big groups of cows. It's actually, in my opinion, probably the best two times a year to kill big bulls are probably like the beginning of September and the end of the beginning of October, I, I think, because they're just kind of like, that's when they're by themselves and they're easiest to get in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. And I, I love that early part of September once they break up from their bachelor groups and they move into those staging areas where they are by themselves, they haven't got in with the cows yet but they're ready for the rut. I mean, they're, they're there, they're rubbing every tree within a hundred yards of that little bedroom that they're staging in. And if you can find a bull in there, he doesn't, you know, they've split up from the bachelor groups because they don't want company. They're irritable and they want to be left alone. And you go in there running your mouth and a bull's there by himself with no cows. And he's like, I don't have to worry about somebody stealing my cows. He's close to my bedroom. I'm irritable. And that's the time to target those big bulls that don't have cows. Once they get the cows, they're focused on one thing, and it can be really hard to pull those herd bulls away from their cows once they're focused on breeding. So I haven't uh, I haven't had as much luck first part of October, uh, but again, you know, I think it depends, like you were mentioning earlier, different areas, different topography, different things, uh, the demographics of the elk, if those big herd bulls, like in Arizona when I hunted down there, it seemed like you know, we hunted these elk for a week straight and didn't see any of those big herd bulls. And then overnight, there were herd bulls with every group. It was like they just showed up overnight, took over the herds, they bred for 10 days, and then they were gone and they just vanished again. And so, um, you know, here in Idaho, we'll have herd bulls still the end of October with the herds breeding cows and uh, still talking sometimes. So it's um, but yeah, that early, that early part of September, if you're targeting a, a herd bull before he's with the herd and, uh, you want to call him, I, I think that there's no better time than right then. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. 
Well, we're going to have to charge for this podcast. You guys are laying down a bunch of gold. A little here. too much information. <laughs> I got to throw in <laughs> I got to throw in one thing that doesn't. So, every time I go in on elk, I make sure the wind's at my back. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there we go. Speaking of that, Remy, you you get to hunt with a lot of less experienced hunters, I'm guessing. Just uh, when you guide, you're probably not hunting with people who have 20 years of elk hunting experience. What's What's one of the things you see they do most often that they shouldn't be doing? Uh, I think it's in the setup and knowing when to move. Um, so like if I'm calling, I can only do, I I always like kind of think of it like this. Like when my brother and I go out elk hunting, if there's a bull bugling, we'll probably kill that elk. It's like 90% chance that we'll kill that elk. And it's because one of us knows how to call and the guy that's shooting knows how to set himself in a position or knows when to move and when not to move. Um, and I think a lot of people actually get kind of too timid where they hold back too far and, and when they need to move forward, when they need to make a move, when they set themselves behind something, when they need to set themselves in front of something, they, uh, mostly though, it's like they need knowing when to move, like to get closer to that bull because it's like, Hey, that bull's, I can tell that bull's hanging up. He's not coming any closer. He's going to go to where he's going to go. And I want you to go to where he's going to go as opposed to waiting right here in front of me. Um, you know, so that whole, like just understanding when to move and how to be aggressive, um, I think kind of hinders people. I think also like, you know, you can get away a lot with a lot depending on the type of topography. If it's really timbered and there's cows around, like you can, you can do more movement than I think people think, uh, without spooking elk, you know, just, you, but being observant. And I think that that's like probably the biggest thing. If you, if you just had a guy that knew how to set up, he would kill a bull like almost all the time. Yep. And that's interesting because, you know, for me, I don't guide, I hunt with the, the same group of guys and kind of like you and your brother, we just know if I'm back calling, I know Donnie's going to pick the right setup and, and be in the best position to be able to kill that bull. And if I'm out front setting up, I know Donnie's going to be doing what he needs to do on the calls to get that bull into my setup. So I don't get the experience of hunting so much with less experienced people. Uh, my children, but they're, they've been brainwashed since they were little. So they've, <laughs> even though they didn't get to experience it, they were told so many times what to do that it kind of came natural. But what I see from other hunters in the field most often for me is a lack of observance of the wind. And so many times they'll be, they'll pop out 300 yards above an elk that's bugling down there and start bugling and moving in on it with the wind at their back. You know, you mentioned that, hey, we're going to have to tell people that they need to move in with the wind at their back just to make them less successful here. But I do see that so often from inexperience, and even hunters that have been doing it for, you know, five, six, seven years that haven't filled the tag yet, you know, the elk just go quiet. Every time I bugle, the elk just go quiet. Well, yeah, when the wind's blowing straight from you to them and you're 300 yards away, they're going to go quiet and move off. And so it's interesting just to see that different perspective that, you know, the setup piece of it is so critical uh, when you're hunting with someone who's not as experienced that they might just sit there and that bull might be at 120 yards rake in a tree and they're just going to sit there and hope that that bull walks into their setup. Whereas someone like you or myself would know hey, if that bull's raking a tree 120 yards up there, sprint as fast as you can, 40 yards or whatever, and try to cover some of that distance and and take a, a risk with being aggressive there on the movement too. 
Yeah, and, and you know, I probably I, – I do agree with you. I do see guys moving in on elk and with bad wind. You know, when I'm guiding or whatever, the, the guys are pretty close to me. I, you know, it's yeah. pretty much like directing and then saying like here. And, you know, most of the elk I end up killing, I'm pretty close to the collar only because I'd, I'd rather take that – because people setting up is so bad, I'd rather actually just like help them. Say, like, okay, we're just, I'm just going to treat it like I'm calling an elk by myself, trying to kill it myself, you know. Um, but yeah, it does make it difficult. Uh, but yeah, you, factoring in the wind, knowing how to set up, and then you know having somebody that can work the bull makes it makes your success rate go up considerably. Absolutely. <clears throat> so we the the. In Montana, our elk seasons go later, you know, even into early October. Uh, a lot of states, our tree seasons close, uh, I don't know, end of September, September 30th or whatever. Anything different that first week of October, that first 10 days of October? Yeah, I will say, so I mean, I, I guess I didn't clarify earlier when I said like the best time to kill a big bull would be like that beginning of October. And that's... I would say that that's for guys that like to spot and stock um, because they aren't as like the big bulls generally. Well, it depends on the seat. Sometimes, sometimes they're fired up and you know, it just depends on the year really. Uh, but most of the time, like once the hurt, like the main breeding's done, the real big bulls kind of pull off from those groups and they just, they've had their butt kicked. They've been, they're isolated. Like they don't want to really mess around too much. Maybe if like, there's some cows come cruising through, um, kind of like that similar thing. Like they, they might go investigate it if it's, if you're close. Um, but like a lot of times they're off by themselves and when they're by themselves, they're super, they're super easy to sneak on obviously. And then they can be, you know, susceptible to certain calls. Um, or at least out of like curiosity, especially when it's like, Oh, maybe some cows is like, Oh, a free date. Cool. You know, like <laughs> came over to my house, you know, they might not even bugle back, but, um, they might, you know, come check them out. So I, I do like that last week of October, if it's quiet and I want to find a big bull, I would generally probably do more glassing then, um, and then base my calling off of what I'm seeing, not necessarily what I'm hearing. Uh, now you, you probably will, you can get like a lot of action too with those like younger bulls that are now controlling the herd and they're kind of dumb. Like they don't really know what's going on. They're just like, yeah, we're in charge now. This is awesome. Dad's not here. You know, bully's gone. We get to do what we want. Maybe I can be the bully. So they can actually be fairly easy to call in then too. It just depends on the year and like how much activity there is. Uh, but for like the bigger bulls, it can be a pretty good technique or tactic for, for stocking in. And I know like calling elk is like a, it takes a, it takes a lot of practice and a lot of doing, and you're going to be real unsuccessful for a while, probably if you're just getting started. I mean, it's a super successful tactic once you figure it out, but you're going to make mistakes. You're going to do things that don't work and you're going to learn from them. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of guys out there that's like, Hey, I've, I'm going on one or two elk hunts and I just want to be successful. Maybe the, maybe the stocking tactic is your tactic. You know, I, I'm not, I don't think, yeah, everybody has to call, but that's just the way that I like to hunt. And I find a lot of success that way. Once you figure it out, like if you live somewhere where there's elk, um, then you should really try to figure it out. Cause one, it's a lot of fun and two, it's consistently successful. Um, but yeah, I guess there's, there's that aspect of it too, where you can be really successful and, and take good bulls if you want to do the stocking method or whatever. No. And I think that there's probably, uh, more consistent methods 
you know, sitting in a tree stand over a wallow, uh, spot and stock. I think that you can be more consistent if you know what you're doing there. Uh, calling is so hit and miss. You know, you get a hot, dry part of the season. You know, you, you take the second week of September off and it should be phenomenal, but you got a full moon and it's hot and dry and, you know, whatever's going on. It can be tough, and you put all your eggs in that basket, and that week you probably should have been sitting over water or, or spot and stocking. Um, but when you have the luxury to be able to hunt a couple weeks in the season, you're going to have a few days where calling is just incredible, and it's going to be the most fun and probably the most effective on those couple of days. Uh, but I always say, you know, people who who can spot and stock any animal – are hands down better hunters than I am being able to call an elk. I mean, I don't have to be a great hunter to be able to call an elk on a certain day when that elk is just, you know, he's ready to play. I can go out there and blow a couple of bugles and the elk's going to be standing in a setup. You know, it, it does take practice. You do have to know how to set up. You have to know how to, how to get that bull, but you see hunters all the time, their first time out, first time hunting elk that call a big six-point bull into a setup and they're successful and then you see people have been hunting for 12 years and have never filled a tag and you know haven't had a bull stand in 20 yards broadside in front of them so it's just you know i think those people who are good at spot and stock i would say are far better hunters than i am i just like remy there's just nothing like calling an elk and i will i'll put all my eggs in that basket every september yeah hmm. Oh, you Randy, why did, why, so why did you laugh there? What, what, you tipped, you almost you, tipped you, over you, in your chair laughing. I know. Well, you said something, Corey. You're like, well, you know, it doesn't take much. You know, you just go up and make a couple calls. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, easy. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Okay. Nothing to it. Right. Yeah. On the uh, right day in the right area with the right elk, it doesn't take a lot of skill to call in that elk. Yeah, I, but let's face it. There's a lot of us who've lucked out and found that one elk on that one day. And then I think, boy, I know what I'm doing here. Boy, I, <laughs> I could have killed him easy. Try to do that consistently yeah. in hot conditions, in wet conditions, in windy conditions, early season, kind of when the peak rut is waning into the post rut. It's the, how, how do I get good enough to do it when it's tough? Yeah, it's kind of like anyone can catch fish on certain days. It's the good guys who catch fish every day. Uh, so I think for the so, people that want to luck into the right bowl on the right day in the right place, the Elk Talk podcast is for them. And for those who want to be consistently <laughs> successful, they need to check out Remy's podcast. <laughs> Uh, there you go. Uh, yeah. I will say so, that I mean there are you're right there 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 are a lot of tactics and and that's the one thing with guiding that's like you know I've got a guy for five days so I have to hunt him to the best of to get him an elk you know when I'm hunting myself it's it's a different game you know it's like I play my own game I play by my own rules I do what I enjoy um, you know when it's with someone else then you know the the tactics change the things. Uh, the things that I do change and, and I play it, you know, there might be times where I say, and it sucks, but we're just going to go sit water for four days and throw out some cow calls and, and do it that way. Or it's going to be, uh, it's late. We're going to try to stock these elk or it's going to be peak rut. I mean, we're going to find one that wants to play. Um, so it just depends on, you know, this, the scenario and the setup and you're right. Like every week is different, but I think that for the most part, if you have a tactic that you really like to do and you 
do it all the time, you get really good at making that tactic work. Guys that I know, some of the best elk hunters I know, don't even own an elk call. They just sneak in on elk every time. And it's like that tactic works for them. They know how to work it throughout the season because that's the tactics they use. Me, I, I can, I generally feel like I can call elk from pretty much the end of August through the beginning of October because I, that's how I've hunted elk the most. And so it's like, I know those tactics for those times and those situations and it changes a little bit, but you know, by doing it, you kind of start to figure out, okay, here's what's working this time. Here's what's working this time. Here's what will work next time kind of thing. Do do you guys think that some people who say they only get a week off or maybe they, they don't live in elk country, so they only get to hunt elk every two or three years or whatever. Do you think very often people come to their place where they're going to elk hunt and they're like, this is what I'm going to do, and they do that even though the elk might be telling them something else? Or they just like, this is this what worked last year, and I'm going to do that every day. And then they're like, oh, the elk are call shy or the elk blew out or whatever. Uh in the rifle hunting I do, very often it seems like uh, when people are asking me questions, it's that they just said, I'm doing this, regardless of what the weather conditions or what the situation is telling them. And so they get stuck in a rut and they, they can't replicate what happened the year before because they're not being as adaptable as maybe they should be. Do you see that a lot in archery season? Oh yeah, I, I for sure see that a lot. I also think you know what you see a lot is like um, people. I mean, if you if you come in from somewhere and maybe it's a new area or whatever, and you're just getting into it, like maybe you hunted there one other time, you you don't really know. Like the trouble is finding where the elk are, and you might think that they were here last year, just like you said, they were here last year, but conditions were different last year. You know, maybe it's a dry year and they're up way higher, so oh, the elk were going crazy here and they aren't adapting for the particular conditions that are there. They're just going off of, and that's kind of the hard part is, so you got seven days to hunt and a lot of guys spend most of their time trying to figure out what the elk are doing, where they are. And then when they finally find them, then they can try these things, but they might only have one or two days to do it, or they just happen to show up at a spot and that's where the elk are. And and then they're in elk. But, you know, I, I think like that's kind of, uh, one of the things, the best thing for elk hunting is just being able to do it multiple years in a row in the same place. And you get really good, really fast because you, you cut down that learning time of like what the elk are doing, where they are. And then you can kind of take that anywhere, you know, it's like guys that have a lot of elk hunting experience grew up elk hunting. We kind of know it's like, well, this year they're going to be here this time of year. Oh, look at the snow. They're going to be here like throughout the entire season. You can kind of adjust your tactics yeah and i see you know i get emails all the time from people after season that hey i went to colorado and i hunted for eight straight days and i didn't see a single track or hear a single bugle like well (laughs) did you stay in the same place the whole time yeah i stayed in the same place whole time so it was a good looking area or somebody told me that it was a good spot and i don't stay in the same place for 24 hours if there's no tracks and no bugles there you know i'll i'll be mobile i'll go 20 miles away and drive and hit another mountain and and look for elk there but yeah i think finding elk is is the hardest part you know that's really once you find elk 
then you get to hunt them. But until you find them, you aren't even hunting. You're just, you're looking for elk at that point. And that's probably the most critical part. You have to find the elk before you can even hunt them. So um, getting stuck in a rut and just, you know, using the same tactic over and over when it's not working or hunting the same place over and over when there's no elk there, I see it way too often. And, you know, I've had somebody just recently say, hey, last year I, I followed your e-scouting advice and I found this north face and there was feed and there was water and all the perfect things there. And I went there and hunted for seven days and didn't even see a tracker hear a bugle the whole time I was there. And they're like, what, what should I do different? I'm like, well, you didn't follow my e-scouting method very closely because my e-scouting method says have at least 10 backup areas and try every one of them if you aren't finding elk in the first one and that's honestly it you've got to be so versatile and mobile not only in areas but in tactics and if you know if you only have one week to hunt or like remy he's got five days to get it done with somebody that has no experience elk hunting you aren't going to be able to just hunt one style. You've got to you've got to cater to that individual's need. You've got to cater to what the elk are doing, what the weather's doing, all those those different things. You have to be super versatile there, and I think that that extends just as much into an individual hunting. They've got to be ready to adapt every minute. Absolutely. Yeah. I, this year in my applications, I'm forcing myself to do some elk hunts during periods where I normally don't elk hunt for kind of what you mentioned, Corey, is I I always struggle in the beginning of September. I don't know why. I think it's just because as a conservative accountant, I have a tendency to be way too passive about how I approach it. I don't move enough. It's like, all right, I'm going to force myself to go and do this for the first 10 days of September. Not because I think I'm going to kill an elk, but I'm going to learn a lot. And most of my eventual successes and knowledge come from forcing myself out of my comfort zone. I mean, if if I wanted to kill an elk every year, I'd go hunt November 10th through the 20th. And I, I'm pretty sure I'd kill an elk every, you know, every time. But that's because that's where I, when I do most of my elk hunting. So, you know, yeah, I've got a pretty good experience base to draw from there. But I think what makes me a better elk hunter is forcing myself to go into those situations that cause me to think more like an elk at that time of year. And so uh, I I suck at killing elk the first week of September. So if you see me <laughs> killing elk the first week of September this year, you'll know that there's at least one dumb elk in every population. Uh, and I, ha- I happen to, to stumble into them. So... But uh, Remy, if uh, all things are equal and they say you can go hunt anywhere, any species, there's no constraints, where are you going and what are you bringing with you? Your bow, your rifle, your spear? I'd I'd definitely be bringing my bow. Um, I don't know. It's so hard to say. The one thing I do, I love calling elk and and hunting elk but i also i think on the like challenge side i think i I love hunting mule deer um like the spot and stock game of it is especially with my bow i think it's pretty challenging um you know i can always go call elk for other people and just be completely satisfied (laughs) you know um in many ways but when it comes to like my own hunts and challenge I i think uh mule deer's pretty high on the list like trying to find a mature buck and take it with my bow i think is, is pretty challenging it's something that i try to you know i i don't actually it's been a while actually since i've dedicated as much time as i used to but um 
you know, probably because it is the time thing of like, you really need to put in some time to make it work out. Um, but, uh, I don't know, man, there's, it's, it's probably definitely, it's definitely between elk and deer, but if it was me with the bow in my hand, I'd probably go for the mule deer because I would know that I could go call for a hundred people during the, the <laughs> September and be super <laughs> stoked on it. <laughs> uh, well, given the track record of what you have with large mule deer, that answer doesn't really surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> but. So Remy, I've got to, I've got to ask you've hunted red stag. Yep. You've hunted axis deer. Yep. Have you hunted uh Sika deer? Uh, I have not hunted Sika, but I have hunted Risa. And have you hunted Fallow? I have, yep. So how similar are those to hunting elk? Because they all call, they they get pretty aggressive with calling. Yep, they do. Um, they're very, so red red deer and elk are the same. Like they can interbreed, you know, like it's, it's almost identical. It's one of those things that always makes me laugh too, because I'll get, I've got a lot of people uh, that, you know, listen or follow stuff from the South Pacific. Cause I've done a lot of, a lot of stuff down there. Um, and they're always like, you know, how, how much do these tactics between elk and red deer interchange? And I'm like, essentially you just change the type of call a bugle for a roar and it's the same thing uh for the most part there's a couple things that are a little bit different for the most part very similar and then you got guys that hunt turkeys and they just assume that (laughs) calling elk and calling turkeys are the same (laughs) i'm like oh the audacity you know Uh, (laughs) how dare you (laughs) i can't even even stand to go on instagram from like april 15th through may 15th because everybody's hunting turkeys and they're like it's just like hunting elk and it's like yeah. oh my goodness if i hear one more person say that <laughs> yeah uh but i w- i will say like the um hunting red deer is very similar to hunting um hunting uh hunting elk hunting rusa and sambar are very similar as well like they they aren't as vocal uh, the rusa can be pretty vocal um but uh the sambar are like a little less vocal, I would say, um, a little more solitary. Uh, but I would say, yeah, very similar in a lot of them. The fallow deer, I love hunting fallow deer, especially during when they're, when they're croaking. Um, it can be, it's a little bit different though, because they, they don't exhibit the same behaviors as elk do. So they're more like, um, they're super, super aggressive and they can definitely be like called in, but they also have like these rut pads that they stay on. And so you, you might get a, a, uh, fallow that's just croaking like he's got his pad and he's just <laughs> like just croaking from this one particular location and then you've got others that have the does and and do their thing so um i don't know hunting fallow deer is actually extremely fun and exciting um but yes yeah, it's, it's it's really cool like their rep behavior is i would say different but it's like a fun it's something else that's like they're so aggressive that it makes it really fun um and then, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the, the axis deer, they're just more of like a, a big herd animal. So they're just in a lot of herds. I, I would say that their like interactions are not the same as, as elk. They kind of have like different habits and it's more like you, you use the calls to locate them, but you aren't really calling them in very often because they're always in groups of a hundred or more, if that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. 
That's a big hurt. <laughs> yeah. Unless you've got like, I mean, I've, I've used like uh predator fawn and distress calls and called in like 300 deer at once. <laughs> <That's kind of> <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think I saw a video of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty oh, fun. Man. That's a, I, I'm just thinking, how would you, how would you get in on something like that? Because this last year I was in central Montana and we had, you know, it was a drought year. So the, the elk were, consolidated in the very few places where there was good vegetation good forage and so we're running into groups of 150 and 200 and the audience is why aren't you calling them in why why aren't you just running in there and getting them to come in well first of all it's really open country and those elk are they usually look around before they approach too quickly and then it's like well how do you separate a bull from 150 or 60 uh, cows. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe there's a way to do that, but for you to say bringing in 100, 200, 300 deer, it'd be like, whoa, let me get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You got to be very sneaky. I, that does, it, you actually do bring up a good point, though. I think one thing that people underestimate uh, when it comes to being successful elk hunting is picking the spot based on the style of hunting that you're going to do. You know, if I talk about elk calling, like where I hunt elk in September is not where I'm going to hunt elk in October. Um, you know, like I like calling. So I like to pick those places where you aren't going to spot elk. You're going to, they have to be vocal. And so I hunt really thick stuff in September. Like I love hunting timber. Whereas if you're a spot and stock guy, do not go in that timber. You're going to not see elk and you're going to be really pissed off. You're going to say, I went eight days and didn't see a track or a sign of elk. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, makes sense. You know, go in that open country. But if you're a caller and you go into that open country, you're going to see a lot of elk, but you're going to really get frustrated calling elk in. So, uh, picking your, like, I do that with a lot of species. It's like, man, I tailor my where I'm going to hunt based on the type of topography and the type of hunting style that I want to do at that time. Uh, because otherwise, you're kind of chasing your tail from the beginning of like, ah, you've got, you're trying to force your type of hunting into a scenario that just does not work well for it. That's that's gold right there. I, yep. I, I mean, the number of people I see who come to the open areas of central Montana and complain, you can't call these elk in while well, they're very <laughs> visual. <Yeah. laughs> they get to the farthest ridge away and they're like, hmm, I'd be able to see that elk if it was here. Yeah, I'm going back the other way. Absolutely. Uh, so, huh. <clears throat> so, uh, we're keeping people a long time, but since we got you here, Remy, we want to want to give people even more than their money's worth. Uh, <laughs> we we do have a money we have a money back guarantee on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> whatever people pay to listen to this podcast, we'll refund it. Uh, and when I say that at at sports shows, like I've been doing this spring, they look at me and they say, "Well, I don't pay to listen to that." I'm like, "That's why we got a money back guarantee." <laughs> That's uh, why the podcast money back guarantee, but this Q and A right here at the sports show is not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, where are you going with this Live Wild podcast? What where where do you see it going? What's uh, what's it going to be? Yeah, I mean, uh, really, I, I like to be able to share these kind of tips and tactics and things that I've picked up. So um, it kind of is two parts. Like I share a story generally every episode. Um, and so a little bit of story. And, and I feel like a lot of people, I kind of started doing that because it's a little bit of an entertainment factor. But also people learn a lot from stories. You know, one of the fun things that I've I never thought of uh, with Solo Hunter is people like the main comment would be, man, I've learned so much. Like I got an elk because I watched your and I was like, 
what? I was just hunting. And that's like, and then I realized, man, people are learning by seeing it or hearing how something went down. So I think, you know, stories are very educational, um, but also, you know, can be pretty entertaining as well. And then kind of dissecting some kind of tips. Oftentimes it has to do with the story or, you know, maybe this is a tip that I use or a tactic that I use because there's so many tactics and, you know, maybe many stories have, you know, you're probably employing 500 tactics at once, but trying to really make it digestible and say, here's what I do in these scenarios, um, you know, and make it where it's like a guy that has five days to hunt, you know, might have these things that took me years to learn and be able to go out there with that kind of knowledge, I think is just going to help people be more successful. So I'm really, I'm really, uh, interested in that. And then, uh, we're, we also, a big portion of the podcast is, um, we do uh, question and answer segments uh, where I've got it before I had people type in. So I'm working on uh, the, this first Q and a will be a call in thing. So people can call and I really like to be able to just talk to people about their questions, making the podcast kind of like, I want it to be where I really want people to be more successful. And so if somebody has got, there's a lot of questions that people have that I don't even think about. I mean, a question that I, you know, answered, before was, you know, like, how do you know where to set up your camp? And I was like, I don't even think about it. But when I really, you know, I was like, I was like, why are you even worrying about setting where you set your camp up? You know, and then I was like, oh, well, people are probably doing dumb stuff too. So you should probably address these kind of things of like, you know, knowing where people are at and, and what they want to learn. So a little Q&A portion. And one thing that I did not do in the past, I didn't really have guests and it was for a couple of reasons. One is, um, it's just I'm I'm all, I'm gone. I'm moving all the time. I'm doing you know. I'm just like to be able to connect with people is really hard for me. So if I just do the podcast myself, I can do it on any schedule in, in any place. Um, but I probably will have certain guests uh, for specific topics that are just like very educational. So um, you know, I, I might be reaching out to you guys in the future for a little help with that. Whereas like, hey, here's an expert that does things a certain way because I think it would be nice to be able to hear from a couple people. Uh, about certain tactics that, you know, really deep dive into that, you know, those people are really good at that specific tactic. Um, so it might be something like a guy that, that just exclusively spot and stocks elk the last, the first week of October or something like that, where it's like, okay, we can dissect this tactic with somebody else that also really, really does that. But for the most part, just me telling stories and sharing tips. Well, if you do need an expert guest, you know, definitely get a hold of Randy and I because we know a lot of people, and we can we can point you in their direction. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, we'll be the broker here, <laughs> matchmaker. <laughs> Some lucky guy is going to be on Remy's podcast. Don't worry, Randy. We'll get our break someday. Just got to keep our eyes open. Yeah. Uh, wow. I uh, I've always admired what you do, Remy. Uh, you're, you're great for what we love about hunting. You're, you're humble and, and modesty, uh, probably causes some people to maybe not know how talented you are and how, how hard you work at it to be really good. Uh, so I'm, I'm thankful that you'd take time to, to join Corey and I on, on this podcast. Um, yeah, thank you very, much. very appreciate much. Appreciate it. it. No, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on here and getting to chat. It's always fun chatting with guys that have similar mindsets and the way. It's funny because you, you go through and you do all this stuff, right? And I mean, I'm sure you know this, Corey. Is like when I started hunting, or maybe when you start. It was like the things that we do, people weren't talking about, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I think that what happened was back in the day, somebody that didn't hunt elk went out, hunted elk 
and wrote a book about on it, and then every other book was based on that book. It has nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> and the more I learned, the more I'm like, that was 100% true, you know, because I was like, yeah. I wish that these kind of th- – and then it's it's refreshing to run into people that also, like, have found out what you found out by doing things kind of similar to you, and you go, okay, it's validation that that is the right way. It's a good way to do things. It, it works. Um you know, and maybe the ways that uh, other people have learned over the years really weren't necessarily, uh, you know, the, maybe guys that had spent a lot of time doing it. So it's nice to know that people that do it a lot kind of find the same, you kind of like, you know, you find the simplest shape. It's like this, this seems to work because it works. And, um, that that's, I, I really enjoy that aspect of like talking with people and, and figuring out, Oh, these are things that we do very similar and kind of the same. It's really cool. Yeah. No, and I mean, listening to Remy, it's almost like, I mean, I can guarantee that we we hunt almost identically when it comes to calling elk. And, you know, I haven't, I haven't learned from Remy and Remy hasn't learned from me. We've learned from the elk and to come to that exact same place, it's, it's pretty exciting because there's not a lot of people that get really aggressive with calling that rely on calls. Um, and so it's fun to, it's fun to be able to talk to somebody that is like that. And, and I think, you know, you're absolutely right. Way back when people were writing books and, and uh, teaching people how to hunt elk, I think a lot of that came from marketing. You know, they were trying to market a product. So they're sharing information that is going to lead people to this product. And I think at the end of the day, if you're sharing information to lead people to a product versus sharing information to lead people to success, they might be uh, two different paths completely. Oh, definitely. One one path is more profitable, I hear. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't have any product to sell. I don't have any information to sell. So I know what the hell I'm even doing here. <laughs> oh man. You got any products to sell, Remy? Uh do I? That's a good question. No, I don't think so. Um, I will. I, <laughs> I mean, I've got, uh, I've got, I'll have some stuff here pretty soon. I'm working on some stuff, um, that'll be out pretty soon, but, um, uh, no real, no real products per se. Yeah, I'm out on your website and I don't even see a store there. Yeah, I took it down. We had some shirts there they, uh, for a little bit, but they kind of sold out. So I'll have some stuff here, uh, in the next, in the coming months, but cool. Yeah. Where can uh, where can people find you and find out more about you and listen to your podcast and all the good yep. stuff? You can uh, listen to the podcast. Just search "Live Wild" with Remy Warren. Pretty much everywhere podcasts are available. And then you can always find me on Instagram or Facebook. Share some stuff there. And then uh, I've got a website, remywarren.com. We've got a little mailing list there. It's um, so I just try to keep people posted on that. I hate like mailing lists because they're always trying to sell something. So I just every mailing list <laughs> I give something away. So which is kind of cool. Like I figure like every time you open it, somebody wins something that's on it. That might be a fun way to do it. Uh, or almost every time, <laughs> so, you know, I just got sick of getting yep. things trying trying to get me to buy stuff. So I was like, well, I might as well give stuff to people. Um, but it's also a way that I kind of use it to communicate. Like, oh, here's a new video or here's an article that i've got or something like that so yeah that's uh i'm the same way with mailing lists uh we have this large mailing list and people are like well you never send out any emails 
I don't know. I just hate being annoyed by email. So I don't want to annoy other people. So, (laughs) right. Yeah. Uh, People are probably like, oh, it's just another email. I was like, I put more thought into that email than I do anything else in my life. (laughs) 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 Uh, Well, it's a good thing that all of us have other jobs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because our our media careers, we've not yet solved the riddle of how you make all this money in the media world. But right. uh, <laughs> moral of that story, folks, if you're wondering, don't quit your day job. <laughs> uh, well, I think we're going to let let folks go. But uh, I, I here's my fear, Remy, is we have this feedback loop where where can they ask questions or give comments, Corey? Elk talk Just podcast. go to elktalkpodcast.com and hit the contact button. <laughs> And uh, my fear is that uh, everyone's going to say, why, "Why don't you have Remy back on there?" That you know, that's uh, <laughs> that, that was a podcast actually worth listening to. So that, we, that's uh, a fear of we, yours. I'm I'm looking forward to it. The more well, invitations yeah. we get to have Remy on, we'll be hey, you want to come back on our podcast? Because all of our listeners just left and went to your podcast. So. <laughs> I think the, the only trouble is they might have learned it all, and they don't need to listen to any podcasts anymore. But next next time, we'll talk about how to stock elk with the wind at your back. That'll be... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <clears throat> well, I uh, I wouldn't feel right if we didn't give a good plug to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation in all this. Uh, go out to rmef.org and hopefully become a member, but also uh, click on... They have a tab there called What We Do. Uh, and uh, you'll hear read all kinds of good stuff about what they do for habitat, for access, for everything else. Uh, and it's because of volunteer work and contributions that there are elk on the hill that we can have these kind of discussions and podcasts and Remy and, and Corey can bugle too much. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I think instead of the t-shirt, we should get two t-shirts, one for each of you. I bugle too much. September's oh, for being loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, Remy, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys. Hope, hope you have a great day. Yeah. Uh, folks, you. thanks for being here. And, uh, now I got to go down to the CPA firm and get my tax return done. I, uh, Oh, man. Wait, what are why taxes? <laughs> <laughs> now we know why Remy hunts hunts in other parts of the world so much. Oh, yeah, it's whenever the IRS just, auditor comes was a by joke. looking for him. Just kidding. <laughs> he, he does live in Nevada, though, and I hear there are some different rules in Nevada. Uh, that is true, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we'll leave that for a different podcast. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Have a yeah. great day. Catch you on the next one.